We're in Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the last book of the canon where God closes up his revelation to mankind once and for all, the last written revelation he will give us until he comes again. And um, just as review from last week, um, I want to remind you where we got to. We talked about the first paragraph of the book of Revelation is the first three verses. The first three verses constitute grammatically a paragraph or a thought, and I entitled that the introduction or the prologue. And, you know, that's not, a prologue is typically not the body of a work, a book, or a letter, but it's something that precedes it. And today we actually get into the body or the uh, substance of the letter itself. And this prologue we outlined as having a bunch of S's, if you remember, probably. You can't see all this, but just quickly to remind you, bring you up to point where we are. We saw in Revelation 1.1 the style of the revelation. That is the essential nature of the uh, writing being apocalypse. Apocalypse being the first word in the Greek, meaning revealing. The subject of the revelation, of course, is Jesus Christ. He's the central theme, the subject of every verse. The source of the revelation is that it's a divine gift. God gave it to him. To, whom, to give to whom? The slaves of the revelation. That's the human recipients, his bondservants. What? The things which must soon take place. That is the soon of the revelation. It's prophetic character. And then we saw the sending. He sent it and communicated it by his angel in a supernatural delivery. And that was through the scribe, his bondservant John, at the end of verse 1, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then we saw the secret. The secret of the revelation is the blessing. And the blessing is what? What is the blessing of the book of Revelation? It's upon those who read and hear and heed. And that special blessing, as I mentioned last week, is to point us to a wisdom, to a path where there is not one, to a confidence in the midst of turmoil and tri trials and tribulations that we can't have any other way. It is the only book that has a special blessing, so we should study it especially. And then last, verse 3, we saw, for the time is near. This is the seriousness of the revelation. It's compelling urgency. And that goes back to the soon concept in verse 1. The revelation is very serious. Why? Because it's imminent. Because it's coming soon. He's coming soon. It's serious because of who it concerns, who it addresses, where it happens, when it happens, soon. The time is near. So, having been through that prologue, that inherent introduction, we now come to what I've entitled a salutation, a statement, and a signature. And no, I don't intend to go through all the book of Revelation with S's. I will run out. Let's look together at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. The next five verses constitute the next paragraph in the book. And it reads, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king of the earth, kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, here is a formal salutation. And what is a salutation? You know, in a letter, in today's letter style, a salutation would be like what? Just dear John or dear Chuck. It's just, that's, that's a simple salutation in our modern letters. But ancient letters had a much more formal salutation. That's what we're dealing with here is a greeting. It's a greeting, a salutation, and then followed by doxology. But that doesn't all start with an S, so we're looking at it as a salutation, a statement, and a signature. So the original salutation identifies the author, issues a greeting uh, to the recipients, the original recipients, at the very beginning. Just in the way this is done, I hope you see how formal and important the letter of Revelation is. The Apostle John never identified himself in his gospel. He went through the whole gospel only referring to himself humbly as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But here in Revelation, he's no less humble, but he's overwhelmed by the comprehension that God has given him this revelation. So he identifies himself three times in the beginning, chapter Chapter 1, he identifies himself in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 9. And then at the end, even in closing, chapter 22, verse 8, he identifies himself as I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So do you get a sense of how overwhelmed just in that John is to be the instrument through which God is giving this revelation? He is the human writer of the book of the letter. Secondly, notice in this greeting, in this salutation, who are the original recipients? Immediately, we're introduced to them. They're identified as the seven churches that are in Asia. Immediately, this book distinguishes itself. If any of you have heard anything about so-called apocalyptic writings, they're the term apocalyptic referring to what we typically think of today is chaotic or cataclysmic ancient Jewish writing that was common from like 200 B.C. to 100 A.D. But this book is set apart immediately from that style of writing in this introduction because it says to the seven churches that are in Asia. Why is that set it apart? Because all Jewish apocalyptic writing <clears throat> was fic fictional. It wasn't grounded in fact in actual events, actual places, actual people. 
here, these are seven actual churches. These aren't symbolic. At least the churches aren't. We talk about seven in just a minute. But these are literally ecclesia. The root word is what we get ecclesiastical from. Ek, um, meaning out. And uh, ecclesia means call. So this is literally the root word for church is what? The, the called out. So these are the called out ones that God through Christ is called out unto himself. As I mentioned, these are actual churches, not merely symbols. But I asked the question, why seven? Because wouldn't we suspect there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor? Asia Minor is the realm of the Roman Empire that is modern-day Turkey. So it's a big area. And in fact, these seven were the major cities in seven postal districts. So communication would go to them and then be disseminated out into the little towns. There are many more cities, and Paul had been there as early as in the 60s. So there was time for churches to develop. And we even know of other churches in the area, like John would have known of churches like Colossae, Hierapolis, and Troas, and even after John wrote Revelation, Ignatius wrote uncanonized letters to the churches at Magnesia and Trollis. So we know there are other churches. They're not identified. There is reason for use of the number seven, and this introduces us to John's favorite number. We know John was fixated upon the number seven. And by the way, trivia question, Paul wrote letters that were inspired. He wrote many letters that were not, possibly, but Paul wrote seven letters to seven churches. Y'all know what those were? Think of your Bible, Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and Thessalonica. So Paul wrote to seven too. But anyway, in the Gospel of John, John's focused on seven miracles, seven signs, seven I am statements. And here is the first of 56 uses of the word seven in the book of Revelation. It's very special. Like, listen to this list. There are seven churches, seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, Seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven thousand people, seven heads, seven crowns, seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven mountains, seven kings, and there are even more sevens that we have to count that aren't identified. Seven beatitudes, seven years of judgment, seven divisions of each of the letters to the seven churches, seven attributes to the Lamb. You see what I mean? Seven is important in the book of Revelation. Why? Seven is the word of completeness, fullness, perfection. That doesn't make it a sacred number. Because in Revelation, the Antichrist has what? He has seven heads and seven diadems. So seven is by no means sacred. 
It just means full or fulfillment or perfection or complete. So these seven churches represent what? The church. And churches of all types, the church universal, and all the different types of churches. So then, and by the way, you know, we'll obviously get into all those seven churches and the letters specifically to them in chapters 2 and 3. Still in the salutation, we see the greeting or the blessing. How does he open? He says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Does that sound familiar? How does Paul open every one of his letters? Grace to you and peace. Uh, every letter Paul wrote, uh, it, the uh, first and second Timothy, he adds mercy in there too. But they all started with grace and peace. So really this is a, a linguistically a combination, a Christian combination of a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting. We all know about the Hebrew greeting, shalom, right? That means peace. In the Greek, there's a word that's very similar to the uh, Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S is the transliteration. It's C-H-A-I-R-E, kari, and that means hail or welcome. So it's kind of a play that the Holy Spirit used upon the Greek greeting, so they say, grace and peace, charis and shalom, a Greek word, Hebrew word. And isn't that appropriate for any letter from God to his people? Grace and peace, because grace is that unmerited favor that we all must have, except God unmeritedly bestow his grace upon us. We're hopeless. We're helpless. And what follows from the grace of God? Peace. It's because of grace that God's people can enjoy peace. Therefore, this is much more than just a casual blessing like we would do, like hello. But this is a serious, formal blessing upon the recipients of the letter. It's meant to bestow upon the people who receive the letter what it proclaims to them. And it also points to the inherent power of the Word of God. In the Word of God, there is power, there is grace, there is peace. And who's it come from? The source of all grace and peace is disclosed to us immediately here in this salutation in a Trinitarian identification of the source of that grace and peace. And of course, the Trinity is who? The Godhead. The three persons of the Godhead. So look at what it says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So here is the first person of the Trinity, which is God the Father. And this points back to what? The three tenses of the verb to be points back to what? Exodus 3.14. When Moses was on the mountain and God spoke to him in the bush, and he said, who shall I say sent me? He says, tell him, I am. I am that I am. Like, I am, I am. If you understand my point there, God said, I am, I am. So here is the perfect reference to that by God being identified 
Different, and by the way, this is different from any other book of the New Testament. No book of the New Testament identifies God the Father in this way. It refers to him specifically as a reference back to the Old Testament to tie the beginning to the end and say, He who is, who was, and who is to come. God the Eternal Father is the source of this grace and peace to you. And then secondly, God the Spirit. It says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now you say, why does it say seven spirits? There's just one spirit. Well, again, what does seven refer to? Completeness, fullness, perfection. And really it points back again to the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, verse 2, said, the Spirit of the Lord, so here is the Spirit of the Lord, first aspect, will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. See? The sevenfold aspect of the Spirit of God. It's also used in Zechariah's prophecy as a vision of a Hebrew menorah. You know what a menorah is? It's a lampstand that holds seven candlesticks. In Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah is asked, what do you see? And I said, I see, behold, a lampstand of all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts. And the reason why we know that's a clear reference to the Spirit of God is because four verses later in Zechariah 4, 6, that's the famous verse that we all know where he says, not by power nor by might, but what? By my Spirit, says the Lord. You see, just trying to point out that right off the bat we're introduced to the obvious symbolism in the book of Revelation. Some people think, well, this refers to seven archangels or seven heavenly beings. But I want to ask you a question. Would grace and peace flow from angels? Would angels be sandwiched in the middle of an introduction of God the Father and God the Son? This is a clear reference to God the Spirit. Third, of course, is God the Son. Verse 5. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here we see an expanded introduction of who Christ is. Why would John spend more time on God the Son than he did on God the Father and God the Spirit? Because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not that the Son has a higher position or rank than the Father or the Spirit, but that he is the revelation of God. He is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He is who we see when we see God. God is a spirit. God the Father is a spirit. God the Spirit is a spirit. God the Son is Jesus Christ. Of the three persons, we need to receive the glory and the revelation of Christ more than any of the other three. Because if we've seen him, Jesus said what? You've seen the Father. And Jesus said, the Spirit testifies of me. And he's sent to be a Spirit 
Romans 8 says he's the spirit of Christ. What does it say about Jesus Christ? God the Son. God the Son is first identified as Jesus Christ. Here is his name. His given name, Jesus, his title, Christ, the anointed. That's who he is. Secondly, he's identified as the faithful witness. Is Christ not faithful? And is Christ not a faithful witness? He's not just a man. He is fully man, but he's fully God. And as God in the flesh, God can only be faithful. He was never unfaithful. And so he was faithful to do all things that God the Father gave him to do. He fulfilled his will in every way, in every time, in every word, in every action. So all that the Father willed, all that the Father spoke, all that the Father commanded, Christ so did. He was a faithful witness. And as we all know, witness comes from our root word, what? Martyr. So he was a faithful witness as a man unto death. You don't get more faithful than being a witness unto death, even death on a cross. Everything about Christ was faithful in his witness. Thirdly, he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, does that remind you of another passage of Scripture where that same phrase is used? In Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 18, the same word firstborn is used. And in Romans 8, 29, the same word is used because <clears throat> it, it refers to him as he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians 1.15 says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And verse 18 says he's also the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Same phrase here. So that he might, have, might come to have first place in everything. So I'm asking you, why would we think firstborn here could be confused to think that means first in order? It's not first in order or first in time, but this is like the rank or the preeminence that comes from being the firstborn child. The firstborn child has the right to all the inheritance. He is the firstborn who has earned and been given the title deed to the earth, as we shall see. He has the authority, he has the rights, he has the privileges of being the preeminent one. The word is prototokos, and it means the chief one, the primary one, the heir to whom receives all the inheritance. He's the second Adam, so as such, he regains the title deed to the earth. And fourthly, he's identified as the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's not only Jesus Christ, faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, but he's ruler of the kings of the earth. This identifies him as sovereign, as king of kings and lord of lords, as we shall read about later in this book. But now notice how these three titles are descriptive of Christ in a way that's peculiar, again, pointing back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Christ was prefigured in three offices, right? Prefigured as prophet, as priest, and as king. So as a faithful witness, he is 
what? The prophet. Because that's what a prophet does, is faithfully testifies of the truth. So, faithful witness, he's the prophet. Firstborn of the dead, he has now opened up access directly to God. So he is the priest. He is the priest who has opened up direct access to all people for, that trust in him. And then here last, we see that he's king because he is ruler over all the earth, all the kings of the earth. He is ruler over them all. And think about how encouraging this would have been to people in these churches at this time when they're being ruled over by the despots of the Roman Empire, the Caesars. They were nothing compared to Christ's reign and rule. Immediately, now we switch from titles about Jesus to a doxology or a praise about Jesus. And we see this in these different expressions too, where it says, it's almost, like, it's almost like John's going through here, receiving this revelation, writing it down, and he's just like Paul. How many times in Paul's letters is Paul going through the doctrine of God and then he all of a sudden bursts forth into praise. What does John say? To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's like John is going through and all of a sudden he breaks out in this exalted praise to him who loves us. By the way, the verb tense of agapaho there, God to man love is present. The King James has it incorrect. The other translations are correct. This is God who loves us. Present tense. Not God who loved us, but God who loves us with an amazing love. We can't comprehend or understand. And past tense, him who released us from our sins by his blood. Here it is past tense. Indicates that he saved us. By the way, this points back to Christ's death being what? A penal substitutionary atonement. When I say penal substitutionary atonement, penal because what? He paid the penalty. Substitutionary because he paid the penalty for who? For us. He took our place. And atonement because he paid the penalty substituting for us and it was satisfactory. It atoned for the sins of us with God the Father. First Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we have been loved from past, present, and in the future, and we've been released from our sins by his blood. So therefore, he's made us to be a kingdom. He has made us to be priests to his God and our Father. And do you see how that naturally ties together? Christ who loved us and released us from our sins is Christ now who translates us into what? Priesthood. In a kingdom. So what am I saying? Christ is prophet, priest, and king? And what does he make us? Prophets, priests, and kings. Now we are not prophet, priest, and kings like Christ is. I, I'm not Kenneth Copeland. I'm not saying we're little gods or anything like that. Don't take me the wrong way. I am saying 
that he's translated us into a kingdom. And as such in that kingdom, we are to be faithful witnesses. As such in that kingdom, we are to be priests who intercede for others. As such in that kingdom, we shall rule and reign with him, and even to some degree do so now, but shall rule and reign with him in the future. And, and, and like last night, when Rod convicted us all by saying, you know, we say we love people, but most of the world's going to hell, and we don't seem to care. So, you know, Christ loved us, but he just didn't say, I love you. Like Carlton said, he freed us from our sins. And, and true love is from God. It's not from, it. we can't well it up. It has to flow through us. Moving on, um, we come to the purpose statement. Here, we had the salutation, verses 4, 5, and 6. Now we come to verse 7, and I know you probably can't read that. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you what it says. Verse 7 I, I just—I tell you, I have never been so excited about studying a book. This book is so clear, at least right now. I know I'll be, I know I will be eating these words later. But this book, I love this book. You got a clear prologue, and now you got a clear salutation, and now you come to a clear statement of purpose. God, in the very introduction, says, "I'm God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. I bring you grace and peace." through John to the seven churches, representative of all churches, and this is what I'm writing for. Here is my message. Here is my point. Here is my purpose statement. What? Behold. Attention. If you didn't have your attention already, God uses a Greek word, I do, to get our attention. This is the first time it's used, but it will be used many times in the book of Revelation. Something serious is about to be said. God says, he is coming. That's the purpose statement. That's why the book was written. That's what the book tells us. That's what the whole book is about. What is the message of the book of Revelation? The subject I've already said, the subject of the book of Revelation is who? Jesus Christ. What is the message? He is coming. That's it. Daniel 7, chapter 13, says, Behold, he, I saw one coming with the clouds, one like the Son of Man. And then it also points back to Zechariah, chapter 4, too, because it has that same feel, but it's symbolic. So, yeah, it is a clear reference back to the Old Testament. But, behold, he is coming. With the clouds. And what does that mean? With the clouds is just a reference to God's presence. In the Old Testament, when you see a cloud, what does it symbolize? The presence and the glory of God. Moses went up on the Mount of Sinai to receive the law. What descended upon the mountain? A cloud. Israel moved through the wilderness, and there was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. It symbolized God's presence. With When God's presence inhabited the tabernacle or the temple, what filled the tabernacle or filled the temple? A cloud. When Christ was ascended up into glory in Acts chapter 1, he ascended up what? In the clouds. When Christ comes to get us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what? We'll be caught up with him in the clouds. When he comes back, 
Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's the glory and the presence of God. Every eye will see him. Here is one of my favorite. This is my tombstone verse. I've told you all that. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. And it says, Then the, Lord, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. Why? Because he's coming. That's, what it, that's, that's the fulfillment here that's being prophesied. Every eye will see him. I don't think that's because we have CNN. I, I think God miraculously will be seen by every eye, and so that drives you to Philippians chapter 2, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Two categories here, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth. And notice it says they will mourn, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That word for mourn or wail is cut. It literally means cut. It's the same word used in the Septuagint about the prophets of Baal when their prophets couldn't do anything and they what? Cut themselves and they bled. So this mourning is one of woe, of regret, of terrible tragedy has befallen us. These are uh, references to judgment, not to glory, but to judgment. And then he wraps up, so it is to be. Amen. Again, combination, literally, Greek, Hebrew. Greek word N-A-I just means yes. So shall it be. So let it be. And then the Hebrew word amen. So yes, yes. I mean, in English, it'd be yes, yes. This, this to me is clearly referring to his second coming. Because every eye, not just those who believe in him, but even those who don't believe in him. Yeah, and there's nothing else. We're now in the last age. There's nothing else to be done. This is it. I mean, the next step is he's coming. It's like a little girl was asking her mama and said, um, you know, could Christ come anytime, mama? She said, sure, he could come anytime. She said, like even today? She said, yes, honey, he could come even today. She said, like, even here in just a little bit? She said, yes, honey, even in just a little bit. She said, well, would you please comb my hair? So, <laughs> so you know, that's the way we need to see it, is that he's coming, and he could come anytime. All right, but I got to say this, and I know we got to go, but this is, this is the takeaway. You got to get this. This is so exciting. I know I'm such a nerd, but this is so exciting. You got the salutation, you got the statement of purpose, and then you got the signature. If I wrote you a check for a billion dollars, and I gave you that check for a billion dollars, what's that worth? Nothing. nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Because my signature ain't worth a billion dollars. But now if you had a check and you could prove that it was legitimate and it had Bill Gates' signature on it, what have you got? You got something worth a billion dollars. God has proclaimed grace and peace to you from the Trinitary Godhead who has loved us and released us from our sins by his blood, made us to be kingdom priests, 
To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And this is what I'm telling you. Behold, he's coming. He's coming with glory in the clouds. How do you know that? Because God signed it. He signed it. Look at, look at, what, look at what he says. I am. Hebrew euphemism. Exodus 3.14. I am. Ego ami. The alpha and the omega. Alpha first letter. Omega last letter of the alphabet. That's like saying I am the A to Z. With an alphabet you can construct any word. Come up with any conveyance of knowledge. This is a reference to his omniscience. I am the all-knowing one, the Alpha and Omega. Says the Lord God, who was, or who is, here is again, threefold tense of the verb to be, who is, who was, and who is to come. The first is, I'm omniscient. I know all things. Second, who is, who was, and who is to come. I'm omnipresent. I'm everywhere. There's nowhere I haven't been. There's nowhere I can't be. There's nowhere I'm not. I'm everywhere. I'm the omniscient. I'm the omnipresent God, the Almighty, the Pentecost, the, the all-powerful one. That's his omni, what? His omnipotence, not his omnipotence, but his omnipotence. So he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. He's all-knowing, he's all-present, and he's all-powerful. So if the all-knowing, the all-present, and the all-powerful God says, Behold, he is coming, he's coming. I mean, this is his signature. This is his pledge. This is his absolute authority saying you can count on it. He's coming. C.H. Spurgeon said, He's coming, he's coming. Ears of faith can hear the sound of his chariot wheels. Every moment of time, every event of providence is bringing him nearer. Blessed are those servants who shall not be sleeping when he comes, nor wandering from their post of duty. Happy or blessed shall they be whom their Lord shall find faithfully watching and standing fast in that great day. He's coming. Let's pray.